Well, it's good to be back. It's good to be back in the pulpit this morning. We had a great time uh, on holidays for the last couple of weeks, and it's always nice to come home to our family here. And uh, it was great to have Rob preaching last week. If you didn't catch his message, um, real encouraging. I encourage you to do that. It's, it's on our Facebook page. It was a strange experience for me to be sitting down in these chairs while someone else was preaching here. That was a first for me. Um, but again, just really encouraged by it. Um, but this is where God has called me to be. This is where I love to be, opening the Word of God with you on a Sunday morning. And uh, especially this season of the, the life of the church. We're, we're just on the cusp of some really exciting things as a church. And uh, um, a lot happening. Um, this fall, um, we're going to be making the break as, a, as an autonomous church. Right now, we're a, a campus of Harvest Calgary, and their elders are kind of overseeing us. And, and I know that doesn't change a lot of on-the-ground stuff for you, um, but uh, still I think it's a significant move for us as a church uh, as we make that step, and we'll be appointing our own elders here. Uh, another big change is, is a mixture of, of uh, sadness and excitement. Um, this Sunday is Tim's last Sunday leading worship as our regular worship leader. Uh, so Tim, we're so grateful for your, your service and, uh, and your dedication here. Um, but Tim's being pulled with family and work and all of that and just feels the need to pull back and have a little more time with his kids, and we just affirm that and want to encourage him in that. Um, but excited, next week is going to be Josh Gosen's first week as our new worship leader, and so it's just a cool transition time in the way God brought everything together. <laughs> like, who cheered? Tim and Elizabeth are going, and it's Elizabeth cheering. So, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, you know, like I say, it's a mixture. There's, there's just sadness and excitement all around. Um, the third thing that is changing uh, is that this is our last service as Harvest Bible Chapel, um, which is a little nostalgic. Um, it's kind of crazy. Uh, next week when you come in those doors, you won't be coming into Harvest Bible Chapel. You're going to be coming into Redemption Church Olds. Uh, things are going to look a little bit different. Uh, there's going to be a bit of a different feel to it. Um, but on the other hand, really nothing is changing. We're the same church. Uh, we've always said, we talk about our four pillars. There's, there's nothing new here. That's the point. Um, we're not trying to be creative and innovative. We're just trying to be what the church has always been called to be. And, and so um, we're not looking to do anything new. Um, but we are looking to maybe kind of change the way we say some things, take this opportunity to tweak a few things um, and, uh, and how we present ourselves. So again, the foundations aren't changing because they were, they were biblical to begin with and we're not moving away from the Bible. Um, but some of the wording is. And so this morning we have our four pillars behind me um, that we've kind of grown to, uh, accustomed to, grown to love as we should. Next week we're going to have some new banners up and uh, we're just changing a few things. Instead of the four pillars, we're going to have what we call redemption culture. This is the, the culture of our church. This is the kind of the guiding principles that direct who we are and where we're going. Um, six defining features of that. First, uh, we want to be a church marked by fervent prayer. Um, prayer that's dependent and expectant. That's where it all starts, depending on God. Uh, so we want to put that first and, and remind ourselves at the outset, it's not about us. It's not about what we can accomplish. It's not about uh, our own wisdom and ingenuity. We need to be a church first and foremost marked by prayer, by being on our knees before the Lord. Secondly, uh, by bold preaching. Uh, 
expositional and applicational. Um, nothing's changing there. We're not shifting away from that, not one iota. Um, don't, don't see that as we shift it to number two. Uh, it's kind of a logical progression, we think. Um, number three, then, is we want to be marked by passionate worship. Uh, worship in spirit and in truth. Again, nothing changing there. Uh, number four has, has always been a priority for us, but it's never been kind of formally stated. Uh, but we want to be a church of purposeful disciple-making, intentional and in community. That's uh, what our small groups have always been about. That's always been the thrust of our church, that so we're making disciples, we're growing in the faith. Fifthly, uh, we want to be marked by courageous evangelism with word and with deed. And then finally is another addition in and through our relationship with the Great Commission Collective and what God is doing there. Uh, we want to be marked by strategic church planting. And again, that's always been part of our DNA. We are a church plant. We believe that God's kingdom grows as churches are planted uh, here. We're looking at where do we go from here? It doesn't end at Olds. As we grow and begin to have people... Um, traveling or, or whatnot, we're looking for, where's God going next? Can we be a part of planting a, a redemption church in, in Red Deer or Edmonton? How do we get involved in that? And again, through the GCC, there's opportunities all around the world for us to be connected with that, um, giving toward that. So that's, that's what we're going to call redemption culture, kind of this foundation line. This is who we are as a church. Um, but I think it still leaves the question, um, what about individually on the practical level what does that mean for me? Uh, and so alongside that kind of higher level redemption culture, um, we're going to talk about redemption life. Who are we as disciples in redemption church? What does that look like? And you're going to see and hear a lot of these three words, abide, grow, reach. That's, that's what life looks like as a disciple in redemption church. Abide in Christ, grow in the church, and reach the community. And I think if we're focusing on those three things in our personal lives, that's, that's where God is going to be at work. And um, so we're going to spend the next uh, seven weeks talking about redemption life, that abide, grow, reach. What does that look like? How does that play out in our lives? Um, and that's going to take us through to September 16th. So mark that on your calendar. September 16th is going to be the day um, that we officially launch as our own autonomous church. We'll begin the process then of installing elders. Um, that's going to be a celebration. Pastor Trevor from Calgary will be here, some of the elders. Um, we're going to have a party. That's going to be a big day. Um, from there, we're going to spend the next six weeks kind of working through that idea of redemption culture. What are these kind of six distinctives? How do we understand them biblically? Uh, and then in November, once we've finished that, that's going to take us into uh, the book of Exodus. And we're going to spend a while just going through Exodus, which I think is a real appropriate place for us to be um, looking at the promise, the power, the providence, and the presence of God as he calls his people out of Egypt and brings them to the promised land. How, how does God work in all of that? And what does that mean for us today? Uh, I think there's just a ton of stuff there. I've been studying it the last few months, really excited about digging into Exodus together. Uh, and that's going to take us through uh, till next September. So that's kind of where we're going. Uh, but today, um, our last official Sunday uh, before we become Redemption Church, I want us to look at that first word in that Redemption Life trio. What does it mean to abide? What does it mean to abide in Christ? Um, we're going to spend a couple of weeks on this, um, but, but why is that so important is the question today. 
When we ask, when we answer the question, what does it mean to be a disciple at Redemption Church? What does it mean to, to live the redeemed life? Why is it the first word that we answer with is abide? And for that, let me invite you, turn with me to John 15. Uh, if you don't have a Bible on you, just invite you to slip up your hand. One of our ushers will grab one for you. We want you to have God's word in your hands so that you can look down and see this. This is not John's creativity. Um, this, is, this is God's word. And anything that I step aside from scripture and misspeak and, or miss something, you're getting God's word right from the page. And that's the goal. Uh, so John 15 Many of you are probably familiar with this passage. Maybe you've even memorized some of these verses. Um, I invite you to maybe see it through kind of fresh eyes this morning. This has been a difficult week for Jesus. It was a long week, a significant week. Uh, It was Thursday as we come into John 15, the last day that he would spend with his disciples. Uh, He would be arrested late that night and eventually taken to his death on the cross on Thursday, and and he knew that would be the case. And he had so much that he still wanted to teach his disciples before he departed. Uh, He must have had a a heavy heart. Um, If we skip back to chapter 12, um, it tells us of the preceding Sunday, the beginning of that week. Verse 12 tells of Jesus entering into Jerusalem, this, this triumphant entry, and the crowds are gathered, and they're crying out, Hosanna, which essentially means we're saved. Our Savior has come. They're welcoming Jesus in as their Savior with shouts of joy. And later that day, as Jesus begins to teach the crowds, and, and he's telling them that, that he's come to save them through his death. They wanted nothing to do with a crucified Savior. That's not what they wanted. And and God even speaks with a voice like thunder, and they still reject Jesus and turn away from Him. Monday, He went into the temple, finds the money changers there, ripping people off, abusing the system, and He chases them out. Tuesday, He's seen debating with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he's rebuking them, and he prophesies that, that Jerusalem, the, the, the pinnacle of Israel, will be destroyed because of their lack of faith. Thursday then, he withdrew with his disciples to the upper room of a house in Jerusalem, and he would wash their feet, serve them the, the Passover meal, the Last Supper, and he's explaining to them that, that he will become that sacrificial lamb. That he's the fulfillment of all of these things. And as he finishes telling them about this sacrifice, Judas gets up from the table and goes out. Jesus' full knowledge of this, he's going out to betray him to the Jewish leaders, to sell him out for 30 pieces of silver. Shortly thereafter, Peter, one of Jesus' closest Friends, one of the the lead disciples makes this bold declaration. Jesus, everyone might turn from you, but I will not. I will not turn from you. I will lay down my life for you. But Jesus knows, and he has to stop and correct him. No, Peter. Now, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you're going to deny me three times. Jesus must have been brokenhearted, leading these stubborn, stubborn sheep. Continually calling out to people who 
would not listen, who would hear his great message of salvation and reject it. So thinking of those crowds on Sunday who heard and rejected, thinking of the Pharisees and the Sadducees who wanted nothing to do with him, thinking of Judas who had betrayed him, and even Peter, his closest disciple who would, who would return but, but would deny him. There in the upper room, Jesus taught them, John fourteen six. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's no other way. Those who turn away, those who betray me, those who deny me, there there will be no other option. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then the end of chapter 4 tells us they got up and left the upper room and began to walk toward the Garden of Gethsemane. As they walked, Jesus began to teach again, always taking any opportunity He'd already said, I am the only way. What he's telling them now is, here's, here's how to walk in that way. I am the door. Here's, here's how you enter through that door. Look with me at, at John 15. Let's look at verses 1 to 6 this morning. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. That it may be more fruit, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. There's two major themes in this passage. There's a warning and a promise. Let's take a few minutes and just feel the force of Jesus' warning here. It's an uncomfortable place, and it ought to be. Jesus says that, He is the vine, and God the Father is the vine dresser. He's the gardener, the farmer. And every vine that doesn't bear fruit, he takes it away. He he cuts it off. God the gardener is looking for fruit, for produce on the vines. That's what he's after. And there are many who call themselves Christians, who cry out, we're saved, as the, the crowds in Jerusalem Maybe even like Judas who spent three years among the disciples coming and going. But Jesus is saying that's not enough. That exterior, uninformed or unsubstantiated, unproven declaration that I'm with Jesus simply isn't enough. God's looking for fruit. He's looking for this enduring evidence. If we peek ahead a little bit, John 15, 8 it says, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. We live in a strange day of, of custom spirituality. Everyone kind of has their own twist, their own personal faith. And alongside that, there's this idea of the, that I can be whatever I want to be. And, and, and you have no right to question that, no right to, to judge. If I say I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. Who could ever argue? It's my declaration. It's my faith. 
If I say I'm a Christian who follows Buddha a little bit, uh, who are you to judge? It's my faith. If I say I'm a Christian, I just, I just don't really follow a lot of what the Bible says. I don't think it's really all accurate. Some parts I'm going to take or leave. Who are you to judge? It's my faith. If I say I'm a Christian, uh, but I don't think this is sin or that is sin, and, and, and I don't want you to talk about my life. I don't want you to look and see my sin. We're not going there. Or I'm a Christian. I just don't do the church thing. That's, that's just not for me. Who are you to judge? It's my faith. No one gets to define it but me. And, and Jesus says emphatically, no. No, I'm the one who defines it. I'm the one who says who is mine and who is not. I'm the one who gets to declare what Christianity is. You don't get to just call yourself a Christian. Jesus says, prove it. Where's the evidence? Prove it. The term Christian is not open to anyone's definition. It's a Christ follower, someone who is following Christ, someone who is going the same direction that Christ is going. If Christ is going that way and I'm going this way, I can't call myself a Christ follower. I'm not following Christ. A grapevine grows grapes. If there's thorns or thistles growing off of your branch of your life, you can't call yourself a grapevine and just make it so. Really, it matters very little whether or not you or anyone else calls you a Christian. What matters is if God considers you a Christian. Then verse 10 tells us, what, what is this fruit? What is this evidence of a Christian? Jesus says in, in John 15, 10, If you keep my commandments, then you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Do you call yourself a Christian? Prove it. Keep His commands. Do you follow Christ? Do you live the way that He lived? Now, we come as sinners. We come as, as weak and helpless and needing a Savior. Nobody, nobody says, I'm a Christian and I'm going to follow Christ and their life is immediately perfect. Not at all. In fact, that's a, a process that will continue until the day we die. And yet, there's a question to be answered. Am I actually following Christ? Is there any evidence And if the answer is no, if the answer is, well, I'd like to be a Christian, or the answer is, I like the sound of being a Christian, I like to call myself that. I like to go to church on Sunday, that's a thing that I do. But if you look at my personal life, you look at the the behind the scenes story, you look for real fruit, real evidence of an actual grace transformed life, I mean, I guess it's pretty slim. I don't know if you heard this, but it was consistent through my kind of youth group years. The question was always, if you were arrested and charged of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? It's a good question. Here's the warning from Jesus. Verse 2. If any branch does not bear fruit, it's taken away. Verse 6 elaborates. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. This is not popular territory in our day. Jesus is talking about hell. And and we need to just stop and stare that in the face. A real 
intangible place of eternal conscious torment by the wrath of God. It's become a derogatory term to say that someone is a fire and brimstone preacher. That's a, that's a bad thing today, but you know who the original fire and brimstone preacher was? It was Jesus. He talked about hell more than any other biblical author. He talked about hell more than any other single topic. And he describes hell in horrifying, terrifying detail. And, and I think we would be amiss to pass over that. He says right here, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And those who do not produce fruit as evidence of their following me will be gathered up like branches and thrown into the fire. Mark 9.43, he again describes hell as, a, as an unquenchable fire. Matthew 13, Jesus says, So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace, into the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 25, 46, Jesus calls it a place of eternal punishment. It's terrifying. It's a horrible thing to say. Now, I don't think there's going to be literal fire in hell. Maybe. Uh, But as I read these passages, it seems to me that Jesus is speaking metaphorically. Uh, But that's not a good thing. What he's doing is reaching for the most unpleasant, the most painful common human experience and he's using that as a as a picture to help us understand just a glimpse of how horrible hell will be i burned my hand this week not bad but enough my wife had turned the oven on not realizing not realizing there was a cast iron pan in the oven and heated it up to 350 and went to put her bread in and move the pan to the stove and i promptly walked in to make my lunch and picked up the pan by the cast iron handle. It hurt. <laughs> it hurt. Uh, immediately, I, I, I couldn't help but drop the heavy pan onto our glass cooktop, which fortunately didn't break. But the pain of that heat, it didn't matter. There's nothing I could do but, but get it off. I, I couldn't stand it for, for any longer. A week later, there's, there's barely a mark on my hand. It wasn't a bad burn. I've certainly had worse. But for that split second, the pain is so intense. And you know the pain. I I saw your face as you tell the story. We've all had that. We've all felt that that searing burn. It's why Jesus uses the metaphor. Because it hurts and we all identify with it. I know that pain. That's that's nasty pain. He could have used childbirth, but then all the guys have been like, I don't know, it didn't seem that bad, right? Could have used a broken femur, but... Most of us don't know what that feels like, but a burn, we've all felt that scorching pain. That, that just makes our skin crawl. Now imagine that pain spread across every inch of your body, submerged into a lake of fire. Not only that, but it's unquenchable. Fortunately for me, the, the sink was nearby. I was able to drop the pan and turn on the cold running water and, and soothe it. And Beth brought out some fancy coconut oil and essential oils and, and you get some relief. But in hell, there's no reprieve. There is no escape. The story of the rich man and Lazarus, Jesus tells of this rich man in hell in Luke 16. 
And he cries out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. It's all I want. Just to dip the end of his finger in water and cool the end of my tongue. Just give me some relief. And Abraham answers in verse 26, No, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. There's no good thing from heaven that spills over into heaven or into hell. It's unquenchable. Let's be clear. The flame and fire in hell is the least of our concern. It's not about fire. It's about the wrath of God. That's what this burning is pointing to. The flame of God's wrath. Incomprehensible and unquenchable. Think about that. We ought to consider that. We don't understand the seriousness of our sin until we understand hell just a little bit. This is not a fairy tale. This is, this is real. This is not an exaggeration. In fact, it's a, it's a metaphor that falls short of reality. Okay, John, enough. We get it. This is not popular. It's not comfortable. You admitted that. Why are we talking about this? We do it because, first of all, Jesus does in this verse, and so we're not going to pass over it. But secondly, because I love you, because I care about you. Notice Jesus' motivation here, which is my motivation, which sets, I hope, the two of us aside from this stereotype of the the fire and brimstone preacher. The motivation isn't to to revel in the destruction of sinners. There's, There's no joy in that. There's no pleasure in that. It's not just to work up fear and frenzy in your heart. But that we would see this warning. That we would understand the wrath of God against sin. And yes, yes, we would tremble in fear. And then understand God's wrath against sin. And then begin to see His grace. Begin to see His goodness toward us offered in Christ Jesus. That's why this passage isn't just a warning. I don't know if you remember the, the end of the world, Harold Camping era, but his understanding was the world is ending and all the sinners are going to hell and he made all these signs and he spent hundreds of thousands of dollars to tell everyone that they were going to hell and, and in his theology it was too late. There was no repentance left. I'm like, What's the point? Why are you telling everyone they're going to hell? Who cares? Of course he was wrong and he missed the entire The man knew nothing of the truth of Scripture. That warning of hell comes as an exit sign. Get off here. There's grace. There's something better. This is a warning and a promise. A precious promise held out. And and until we understand the gravity of the warning, we don't see the beauty of the promise. So let's turn to this promise. Jesus says, I am the true vine. You can only really speculate, um, but it's, it's very reasonable to assume as they left the upper room to walk toward the Garden of Gethsemane, they would have walked past uh, the temple. And one of the prominent images carved on the face of the temple was a large grapevine, a common symbol throughout the Old Testament of the people of Israel. They were God's grapevine. They were God's vineyard. 
And that may well have been what kind of sparked this conversation as Jesus looked up and pointed their attention to the grapevine and then said, I am the true vine. He's comparing himself to Israel. And Israel is often referred to as a vine. Um, the vine was a picture of God's blessing through the Old Testament. And when they sent the spies into the promised land to, to check it out, what did they come back with? They come back with this grapevine, so full of grapes it took two men to carry it. It's, it's a picture of God's blessing. His blessing there is abundant. If, you will, if you'll trust me, follow me into the promised land, that's what awaits you, the fullness of God's blessing. It was one of the promises of life after the return of the Messiah. Micah 4.4 4 promises every man will sit under his own grapevine. I mean, that's just a good picture to begin with. I could handle that. But it's more than just sitting in the shade picking grapes off your own vine. It's, it's a picture of the fullness of God's blessing, his favor. The vine is God's blessing. And Israel was to be the vine of God, the, the recipients of God's favor, and then this, this conduit of God's grace into the world. But if you look closely as you read through the Old Testament, every time this image of the vine and the vineyard comes up, the point of the story is that Israel failed, that Israel falls short again and again and again. There's a number of examples. Let's just pull out two of them. Jeremiah 2.21 it says, yet I planted you, a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? And though you wash yourselves with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord. Isaiah 5 says, let me sing of my beloved, my song concerning this vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones. He planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and he hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for me to do to my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and I shall, it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste, and it shall not be pruned or hoed. The briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they not rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel." The men of Judah are his pleasant planting. He looked for justice, but behold, 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 bloodshed. And for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Israel had failed. And that was part of the, the old covenant was all about, was to show us our weakness in and of ourselves, our inability to produce what God requires. The law of God says be perfect and we're not we fail we fall we sin the old covenant stands there to help us see the the beauty of the full covenant of promise coming on display jesus is the true vine he's the fulfillment of of what israel pictured jesus is the the perfect object of god's 
favor and, and this new conduit of God's blessing into the world. And this new vine will not fail. It will not fail. Verse 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. There's the promise. This vine does produce fruit. This Jesus brings about something. He brings about the goodness and the blessing of God in those who are in him. He brings about the righteous life that God desires, and he will not fail. He's the true vine. Back at verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Everyone who claims the name of Jesus but is not truly saved, is not actually a a grace-transformed follower of Jesus, and therefore produces no fruit, no evidence, they'll be cut off. They'll be rooted out and, and burned. But listen to this, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And the word more there is plerao, it could be translated abundant fruit, it's overflowing with fruit. If you have no fruit, if you have no evidence of the life of Christ working in your life, no brokenness over sin, no repentant heart, no trajectory toward the fruit of the Spirit and and increasing obedience, you need to hear this warning. It's a call to repent. It's a call to turn. It's this stiff warning. The wrath of God is coming to all those who continue in sin. But If you have fruit, if you're truly a child of God, if you've put your faith in Jesus and there is that, that evidence in your life, You need to know God's desire, God's purpose in you is that you would be more fruitful. That that would increase, that would overflow. He wants to to prune you that you might flourish and grow. But notice, he's not commanding fruit. He's promising it. Be encouraged. Remember, one of the people that Jesus is talking to here is Peter. Peter, who was about to have the the lowest moment in his entire life. He's about to turn his back on Jesus and absolutely deny him and shame him three times. And Jesus is saying to Peter, the Father's desire is to prune you, Peter, to shape you, to, to grow you, that you'll bear more fruit. Maybe that's you this morning. You feel like your life is kind of, Kind of parallel with Peter in the dumps. A little closer to the people of Israel than this picture of the fruitful vine. And you hear that warning of the the branches being gathered and burned. And and you maybe, I hope you feel sorrow and, and repentance for sin. There's evidence there of God's work in your heart. But you wonder, maybe that's where I belong. Maybe that's me. Maybe that's what I'm destined for. But this was not the end of Peter's story. The book of John closes with Jesus after his resurrection, walking along the Sea of Galilee with Peter. The disciples were there. He pulls Peter aside. Come walk with me, Peter. Three times Peter had denied Jesus, and now three times Jesus asks Peter, Peter, do you love me? 
gives Peter the, the opportunity to reaffirm his commitment, his love for Christ. And then Jesus took Peter, who aside from Judas um, was the disciple that fell the hardest, the furthest. And it would be easy to say Judas was not a disciple at all. And he takes Peter and commissions him, says, feed my sheep, Peter. He makes him a pastor. And in the end, we see that he uses Peter in amazing ways. As you read through the book of Acts, Jesus makes Peter the most fruitful of all the original disciples. He's the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. He wrote two books of the New Testament. Aside from Jesus, he's the main character of the first nine chapters of Acts. God is pruning Peter. He wasn't always fruitful. It took a time of difficulty, a time of pruning, pruning that was painful. But Matthew, in Matthew 12, he quotes Isaiah, and he says this of Jesus, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. What's he saying? A reed was the most weak and fragile of plant stalks. A bruised reed will be blown over by a gentle wind. It will be broken. This smoldering wick is a, is a candle burned just about out. It's barely hanging on. There's that little glimmer of red, barely hanging on. It's a picture of the weakest of the weak. And Jesus says, I won't crush them. I won't, I won't snuff that out. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Come to me, all who are burdened and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. He longs to build you up. He longs to see you bearing much fruit. But the call here, the command again, is not bear fruit. Jesus isn't demanding, shape up your life, get things in order, smarten up, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. No, you're not the vine. You're not the vine. Jesus is the vine. It's not a call to bear fruit. It's a promise that you will bear fruit. The command here is abide in Christ. Verse 4, abide in me. I love that word, abide. In some ways, it's, it's a very simple word. It just means stay, remain. It has this essence of rest. It's, it's giving up. It's stopping trying to impress God with all my own effort and tidying myself up and saying, okay, I need Christ. I'm going to rest in Him. In the context of the vine and the branches, it calls us to stay connected to Jesus. Draw on Him for your life, your strength, your vitality. Find your, your hope and your peace and your life in Him. That's what it means to be a disciple. That's what we want to be as a church. We want to be a church filled with fruitful disciples. Not, not perfect people. Not a, not a church where you walk in, everybody's trying to keep on the, the good face and everybody's okay and, and you know, don't look behind the curtain. No, we, we come as sinners clinging to the vine. I need Jesus. And in Him, we'll bear fruit.
in him will be built up of people overflowing with evidence of God working out in our lives. Selfless, sacrificial love for one another, growing in obedience to to God's word and the likeness of Christ, sharing this gospel with others, worshiping Jesus with passion and joy. We want that because verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. That's what we want to be, a church that glorifies God as we bear fruit. So I want you to grow in fruitfulness. I want you to grow in evidence. Maybe, hard as it might be, I want you this morning to look at your life and if you have to see that there's no fruit and come face to face with that, then that's where you need to be. I need to turn and cling to Christ. Give up fighting. Give up trying to do your own thing. Come to him for grace. See that warning of the fire of hell and be terrified and see the promise that we might be a church, again, overflowing with fruit. And there's one way to produce that kind of spiritual fruit and it, that it's not just outward actions. It's not just words and human effort and striving. It's not about relying on our own strength. It's not about me telling you more about what you have to do and setting more rules and setting the bar higher and giving you more laws to obey. It's not about us coming and getting ourselves all kind of pumped up and excited Sunday morning and rah, rah, rah. No, it's, it's about abiding in Christ. It's about coming here and being reminded again of His grace and then, and then Monday morning, hanging on to Christ. Tuesday, hanging on to Christ. Wednesday, hanging on to Christ. That's where we live, connected to Him, holding on to Him day in and day out. We'll talk more in the weeks to come about how we do that, how we put that into action. What does that look like in our lives to to abide in Christ? But that's what it means to be a Christian. It's not about what you do. It's not about going to church or giving to the church. It's not about what you say or how neat and tidy and moral your life is. It's about abiding in Christ and the true vine, living in Him, this life-giving relationship. That's where we start. As we abide in Him, He will produce fruit in us. Let's pray. Father, You are so good to us. Lord, we we tremble as we stare in the face of Your holiness and Your wrath against sin and the terror of hell God, you have painted a picture that is more than we can bear. And God, we confess that that's what we deserve. That is where our sin would rightly take us. God, help us to see that promise. Help us to see the glory of this great gospel that Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Lord, if anyone says he has no sin, he deceives himself and calls you a liar. But if we confess our sin, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sin, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. What a, what a glorious promise, Father. God, help us to learn how to abide in Christ. 
to live in that grace, to stay connected to his life-giving self. Lord, that we might bear fruit. God, I pray as we move forward as, as Redemption Church, that we would be a fruitful church. We would be a church filled with people who are holding on to Christ, who are connected to Him in a true living relationship that overflows to a fountain of abundant fruit. God, that you might be glorified. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name.